Oh, we can do video if you want to. Can you hear me? Why not? Hi. <laughs> Hi. How you doing? I can meet you finally. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Same here. Thank you so much. You look lovely, by the way. Pardon? You look lovely, by the way. Oh, thank you. I just got my hair done today. <laughs> nice. <laughs> my oh, my gosh. That looks painful, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, who did it? Was it an African or an African-American? Because the two hands, you know, they're so different. It's so true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the African, the way they like twist your hair, like they're trying to communicate with your ancestors or something. Like no, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I have such a tender scalp. I have such a tender scalp. Like any form of manipulation on my head, I go like a tortoise, like all day long. So I went natural. I have dreads on. The woman who did it for mm-hmm. me was laughing because I was wincing <laughs> from the pongo. I was dying. <laughs> about black women being resilient this is what they mean this because it starts from when you're young like they just put you through all of that horror and it's like you know hair manipulation <laughs> that's like a startup kick to being resilient amen amen <laughs> well um it looks it looks beautiful so um good job on withstanding that torture <laughs> Hey there, welcome to the More Civil Podcast. My name is Mo. I created this podcast as a resource for Blacks, Asians, and those who love them to share stories and processes and build community around important issues. On this show, you get to hear amazing stories from people like you who show us how to get more out of life. The stories featured on this platform are by people whose journey I'm inspired by, and most importantly, people who have been courageous and vulnerable to be open about their life stories. And I hope that in turn, you'll find these stories. All right. Um, hey, everyone. Uh, welcome back to the show. Today, I have um, a wonderful pleasure of um, bringing someone on the show that was highly recommended to me by one of my friends slash mentors slash sage. And when I have people recommend people to me like that, especially people that I really trust and love, it means a lot to me. Um, one, because um, they trust me enough to to be able to explore that person's story. I like that. I just want to say that I'm so open to those kind of referrals. So keep sending them in. And so that said, shout out to Dr. Ayomide. I know he's going to hear me for mentioning his name like this. But Dr. Ayomide Adebayo um, for um, making this recommendation. So um, her name is um, Abina. She's a first-generation Black British woman living in the American South since 2016. So that's about three years. She was born in Scotland, raised in England by her Ghanaian father and Trinidadian mother. Whoa, that's a word that you don't use often. <laughs> what a talk to after studying the American Civil War as an undergraduate, she learned the untapped power of Black narratives in American history and how they can inform pursuit of racial justice, equality, and reconciliation. This led her to where she is now in Nashville, Tennessee, pursuing her PhD in history. Besides being a self-confessed nerd, Abena is a woman of faith, enjoying theology, and seeking to ask the hard questions of the world and life in order to have a deep understanding of God. That is really deep, girl. So everyone join me in welcoming Abina to the show. Thank you for having me, Sybil. I really appreciate it. Thank you. you can call me Mo. Mo, okay. Thank you. Yeah, I don't know if I'm saying your name, right? Is it Abina or Abena? Either is fine. It just depends on where you're from. I'm used to my name being pronounced a lot of different ways. Uh, well, African girl, tell me. Just give it to me. Don't, don't, don't do the white person. I'm just going to call you Bob. I'm also fine with that. But, oh, really? Uh, but most of my uh, European and American friends call me Abina. I'm fine with that. Your but Ghanaian friends, what do they call you? Abina. Let's go with Ghanaian because I am white. <laughs> <laughs> Abina. 
I'll allow it. <laughs> you know that there's a Nigerian name that's like that as well? I bet not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a Nigerian name like that. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a Nigerian name as well. Anyways, that we have in common with your friends, which... Um, <laughs> common or wanna... rivalry? That's the question. <laughs> uh, there's no rivalry. Let's never go into that. I like your race. Don't ruin it. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> anyway, let's, let's unpack that. I'm just curious to know. So, you know, such a, such a rich history you have. Mm. And then studying about, you know, American civil history while you were in England, like, how did you come across that? And how has this shaped your life pursuits currently? I think I'm just going to start like that because, you know, your bio is just powerful. Yeah, thank you. Um, whew, I don't even know where to start. So, yes, I am first generation African Caribbean. Um, as you said in my bio, like born in Scotland, raised in England, now living in America. <laughs> um, it's a lot of identities happening all at once. Um, and... I think growing up as third culture in the UK, it's very confusing as a child, for sure. Um, Growing up in a culture where your household culture is so radically different. From the external one, yeah. Yeah. Um, And so just my social life versus my family life just looks so different. Um, Also, the area of England that I grew up in was the northeast of England which is not particularly racially diverse. It's more so now, but particularly when I was growing up. Uh, I was the only black girl in my school until I was about 14. Oh, wow. My sister, she was in the same school. She's four years older than me. I have two sisters, one 12 years older than me and one four years older than me. Okay. So we were rarely in school at the same time, mostly just myself. And honestly, I think because of that fact, I kind of wanted to avoid it. <laughs> I didn't like talking about race, but it made me feel uncomfortable and weird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't really like to think about it. I just, I think the way it really came up for me um, as a child and as a teen was just kind of like, why aren't my parents like everybody else's parents? <laughs> uh. <laughs> Especially, um, you know, West African and Caribbean parenting versus British parenting. <laughs> totally different <laughs> so the whole like oh why aren't you coming to this party with us is like i don't have a why i just have a no <laughs> exactly why aren't you doing um sleepovers with us um uh, can't tell you why exactly. <laughs> i don't have a why that's not part of the conversation <laughs> <laughs> it's not even an argument we can make at home we just hear no and that's it <laughs> <laughs> exactly um but yeah i think i've always my parents would definitely say it of me. I've always been very, I've always been like an avid reader and a very passionate person about right and wrong and justice and all mm. of things. Just mm. my person. Um, and so once I got into college, I went to the University of Edinburgh as an undergrad um, and I went to study history. Off the back of a project that I did in high school that was essentially, um, looking at Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement. Oh, nice. Um, and honestly, after yeah. doing history for long, it kind of just came alive for me. Yeah. Um, just realizing how much power there was in looking back at how people on the margins have viewed potential futures of the world. Like, uh, not accepting the status quo, but, also, but kind of like engineering a future that can look different and be better um, for more individuals. And that really captivated me as a teenager. 
went off to um, undergrad at University of Edinburgh and honestly didn't really, I studied history, but I didn't really have any big plans um, to keep going. But it wasn't until I did American history in my second year yeah. and fell in love with it. And firstly, this is one thing I will say that I do love about the American, um, some of the Americans that I've met, um, okay. professors. They are much more personable. <laughs> really? System. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, you guys are known for sticking your nose up and all that. So I think I understand why. <laughs> Definitely. And so it was the first time I was working with American professors who were genuinely interested in my ideas and my point of view, rather than a, you're not a scholar, so you mm. don't have a kind of approach which I was used to. Um, so I took a civil, a civil war course. I took a slavery course, actually, first. And that is the hand of God and God alone. <laughs> how it works at the University of Edinburgh, how it worked at the time was I had to essentially rank the courses that I was interested in taking. Yeah. And I remember vividly seeing the course called The Peculiar Institution of Slavery, um, Antebellum America, etc., etc., and being like, absolutely not. not. No, thank <laughs> <laughs> like I will cry it will be awful I don't want anything to do with that and as far as I remember I don't think I'm remembering it wrong I didn't even put it on my list I didn't even rank it or if I did it was definitely dead last and I ended up getting assigned that class oh wow I there you were every other semester I'd been able to take <laughs> and this semester I couldn't so I ended up in this classroom arms folded <laughs> The hand of God in it. He walks in mysterious ways. Absolutely. Um, I cried my way through the first three. <laughs> <laughs> Which honestly, I think it's the right reaction when, when you have never learned about these things before. Before, so. I, I'll be scared. I'll be like, what am I doing here? Like, this is Genuinely. just too much. Yeah. So, it, it's harrowing to really look at man's inhumanity to man, like the depths of the things that we are capable of doing to one another. I know, I know, I know. It's, it's really horrifying to look at. But I ended up um, having an incredible professor who really just tapped into a particular interest. He thought that I might be interested in the religious perspective um, and identity formation of African-Americans within slavery yeah. and suggested a project to me. And, and that was it. And I, um, studying the American Civil War, studying the antebellum South, and particularly like the Black experience in the American South, it has completely reframed my world (laughs) (laughs) and reframed how I think about things. I think the the most life changing thing to me is has been sorry the just the depth of um resilience that lies within us um that when i really read the i deal with primary sources i look at diaries i look at um letters yeah mm -hmm. those kind of things and looking at even slave narratives the ones that were published and reading these things from people who were encountering it firsthand as witnesses or victims just the fact that God created us in a way that even in the worst of situations, we can somehow survive, somehow have a sense of self that is detached from our experiences. 
That's so true. That's something of God. <laughs> That's so true. Because those two things is so um, inversely proportional. You should have yourself eroding, especially when you're in those, you're in those you know, harsh, inhuman conditions. But it seems to be strong enough that it, the way it gets transferred to the next generation and the next generation, like it's so preserved in a way that you know it has to be inborn. You know? Absolutely. And that's not to say that, you know, there aren't, there isn't, you know, you know, what they call generational trauma. It doesn't mean that of course. it's ethic. It doesn't mean that. Yeah. But. <laughs> it's exactly why there's generational trauma, because those things are part of, we can talk about the good parts of it, but it also comes with the bad part of it. Exactly. Exactly. And I think what I've really enjoyed um, in what I do is really just looking at how people particularly enslaved peoples understood themselves. Yeah. I think that's really, I think that's really um, the biggest question today and has been mine in my experience of moving here in terms of how do you survive in a system that sees you a particular way? That was going to be my next question. So I, I, I mean, like you, I moved from another country that was, you know, different from here to the U S and even though they talk about diversity here, how, you know, the U.S. was built, you know, to be diverse. Yep. <laughs> there's just a the way they just want to flatten you out and reduce it to something you want to check on the box. Like, yep. you're black. And yep. I'm curious, you know, I mean, you come from such a rich, you know, cultural heritage. You know, being, and then even growing up in the place you grew up and the environment you were in, and then moving to the U.S., what does it mean for you right now to be black compared right. to what it was before you came to the U.S.? Yeah. Um, so I think that I was incredibly naive before I moved here in thinking that because I've studied race since I was 18, Yeah, I think I, I thought I was prepared for the experience. I thought that I knew um, the racial dynamics of America, particularly the South. I thought that knowing it intellectually would mm-hmm. mean that experientially. <laughs> It was still different, right? And it's world apart. <laughs> what was that one thing that stood out for you? Like, what was the, the most shocking thing to you? Like, oy, the most shocking thing to me is still, not even back then, I think it's still now, Uh-oh. is how dyed in the wool ideas of race are. Like, I feel like at home, the issues I dealt with were extreme so if somebody doesn't like me on the basis of of my color Mm -hmm. (laughs) i would know it's very obvious it's very clear yeah whereas here oh geez everything is so racialized that to an extent that people who wouldn't consider themselves racist they don't even see how race is the first thing that they see and they have a ton of assumptions about people that's it um, it's, it's woven into the fabric of everything that it does it's, it's just in the fabric it's in the air it's um, like a black mirror project like we that's so true that i explained this to one of my roommates the other day um i love i live with two um white american girls and they're amazing um girls who love jesus and but it means that we have some interesting conversations from time to time about these things. Thank God for Jesus. At least that's a you know puts us together in spaces like that. Exactly. <laughs> it means that we can have like edifying conversations. Right. True. Mm-hmm. I agree. You know. Um, but I was explaining to her. I was like, I think the the hardest thing that I that I um, 
experienced and still experience is because at home I was used to dealing with ignorance, as in people had never been in close relationship with black people before, they hadn't grown up around them, etc., etc. Most of what I had to deal with was I literally have no idea about anybody like you which can get to a frustrating extent of like, I am just also human. <laughs> yeah. So and it's also, I think it's more teachable. You can actually teach them how to, you know, relate better with you. Whereas here, <laughs> the way I phrase it is like, it feels like you don't get to start at zero. Like, no, everyone people, is a professional when it comes to your race. When, when I meet people, they already have 20 ideas about who I am on the basis of my skin. Oh my gosh. And it's, it's crippling. <laughs> it's stressful. <laughs> Across the world on your own. Yeah. And you're trying to make friends. Yeah. And you're used to being in predominantly white spaces. So you yeah. don't have any expectations of it being a problem. <laughs> I know. I know. And then it's like, one second, you think, what? About black people? <laughs> and isn't, that, isn't it weird that they come with so much assumptions about us and it's expected that we shouldn't have assumptions, you know? Yeah. And even if we do hold those assumptions, it's supposed to be positive and good. Exactly. And I'm like, really, don't get off your high chair. That's the thing. I'm like, you know that you approach me with an assumption that if my hair is like this, that I'm ratchet. (laughs) If I have natural hair, that I might smoke. Radical. Yeah. Yeah. I'm radical. Yeah. Unhinged, you know? Yeah. What is the ground zero that I'm used to of like, hello, my name is Abina. (laughs) And this is even before you open your mouth to say anything. Just by your parents alone. You sized up what you're wearing, how you look, what you know, the color of your hair, how it's, dark your skin is. There, it's just it's such a different world to operate in, where that is the that is the primary definition that people are working with and understanding other human beings. And sadly, for Black Americans, for the Black diaspora living in America, I'd say ninety nine percent of those things are negative. Um, and then you have, you know, that we can all sing and we can all play basketball. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the, the rest of them are usually negative. So go to your first question of, like, what does being Black mean to me now? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it, I've only recently been able to articulate um, kind of the crisis that I think I had because all of a sudden all of my identities were being collapsed because at home, nobody, even though I was born there, nobody would call me British. I'm Afro-Caribbean. That's what I am. Whereas here I'm African-American until you hear me speak. And then I'm British. <laughs> exactly. And there's no, there's nothing to connect people to the other identities that feed into me. So it feels like all of these identities have just been collapsed. Into oh my gosh. We're going to assume you're American, but then when we hear you speak, we're going to ask you about the queen and crumpets and tea. <laughs> and fish and, and chips. <laughs> exactly, and fish and chips. And I'm like, I grew up on jollof and pancakes. Like, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, oh my gosh. That, honestly, like, that was a bigger crisis for me than I think I realized at the time. I think I, it was very confusing. It's a whole new way of being perceived that I have no control over. Um. <laughs>
but I think I've come to appreciate that. I think the, the, it's just a part of, and this speaks to another of our topics, but I think, I think I've always felt like being black meant that I needed to know everything about everything to do with blackness all at once, just because mm-hmm. I think I'm realizing that it's a mixture of experiences and also learning. I get to learn too. It's not just white people that get to learn. Like I'm learning about myself. Mm-hmm. I'm learning about um, what blackness actually means because yeah. time and time again, I spend time with my African-American friends and they're like things that they would associate as white. <laughs> things like I explained it to one of my friends yesterday. I was like, you guys think the Beatles are white? No, they're not. They're just British. I know the entire Beatles catalog because <laughs> I grew up. <laughs> that has nothing to do with whiteness to me. That has everything to do with nationality and culture. Um, and it was a silly example, but yeah, I, I have another one of playing, you know, the game Heads Up. Like, I know Heads Up, like charades, yeah. The one yeah, on the phone, yeah. yeah, yeah, up and down. I came back after being home over Christmas and two of my friends were like, oh, they've come up with a black heads up. And I was like, uh-huh. I bet you it's an African-American heads up. And she was like, no, 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 no. It's definitely, no, it's a black heads up. I was like, let's play it. Let's see how much of this <laughs> I know and could understand and play along with. Yeah. And none of it. I think the only one I got was Gabriella Union. <laughs> oh, jeez. At least you got one. <laughs> because I think it was... I think it's a Cosby show that was the Huxtables. Yeah, the Huxtables, yeah. Um, and one of the characters is called Heathcliff, I'm told. Oh, really? I kind of remember that. But to me, Heathcliff is from Charlotte Bronte's book. Book, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so they didn't use that analogy for you. So you lost that point. <laughs> what are you talking about? I was like, see, that is my cultural reference versus your cultural reference. Oh, wow. Um, wow. And that took a while because I think at first I was used to not quite fitting in with white folk because that's just been my norm. Yeah. It's a completely different thing when you're supposed to be with your own people and there's, there's this disconnect of culture. Of culture, um, But I think yeah. that's because of the assumptions that come with. Because you had mentioned earlier that you still have, like, with your white American friends, especially those that you know, as Christians, you guys still get to have those edifying conversations. Exactly. And I can imagine that's like a saving grace, like explore one another beyond what they look like, beyond what you look like. But what are your interests? What think about this theology? What's your stance on, you know, for example, Paul and, you know, his exactly. attitude towards women, things like that. Things, I mean, actually edifying conversations beyond your skin color. Precisely. <laughs> that's it for me. I'm like, those are the, those are the deepest relationships that I've had. I agree. I think, I think through moving here, um, I've really come to value what my dad said before I left. Which was, what did he say? He was like, when you're a Christian, you have family the world over. Like, you can find people. That is so true. We should tweet that. Have really you tweeted is. that? If you tweet that, I'm going to retweet you. <laughs> Make sure to cite him as the primary reference. That's so true. He, he was right. And I remember saying, like him saying that while I was crying and so nervous and whatever. But I'm like, it has been my friends who share my faith that have been like the deepest um, 
my most fruitful relationships and also the ones that have helped me really dig roots here. That's good. That mean that obviously blackness is irrelevant. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. Uh-oh. It's deeper than that. Yeah. Uh-huh. It can never be and it shouldn't be. Yeah. Um, but I have. As Christians, to- as Christians, that is because our identity is in Christ, you know. Exactly. Basic. I feel like I've come to understand what that means in a new way. And I yeah. think that a, I think that that is a unique challenge and actual gift that I think black yeah. Christians really bring to the table. Um, and I and I, I can explain this more than once if it doesn't quite make sense. <laughs> but okay. the way I've recently come to think of it is it is the tension. It's not even a tension; it's direct conflict. Yeah. That I we face in terms of identity of living by what and who the world says we are yeah. versus what the revealed word of God says we are. I think being a black Christian, you experience that in a very unique way because the world is constantly trying to tell us who we are, trying to form our identity around something that is lesser, but the revealed word of God does not say that. That's it. I agree with you. And I think that's why the church is like the saving yeah. grace, you know, to mirror what, you know, the Bible really says about us, you know, being mm-hmm. bought in Christ, being bought, you know, by Christ's blood. It's, it's something that transcends beyond race, but then it doesn't erase your race. Cause no. it's the diversity that, you know, just imagine everybody singing with their, you know, different kinds of talents and think of it like a, like an orchestra in a way, orchestra in a way. You know, you have the bass, you have a solo, you have, you know, people just, you know, doing this stuff. And I think that diversity is what the church should mirror. But you find that even here, and not just you into the U.S., the church hasn't done a good job in homogenizing, you know, um, the different diversity that should mirror what heaven should be like. Exactly. I saw someone tweet recently that people are going to get a rude shock when they get to the kingdom because <laughs> most people don't speak English. Most people have dark skin. Most people. Oh, yeah. Very true. So true. They don't look the way you think it's supposed to look. So true. But I think if it, I'm really grateful for that because I think I had a revelation uh, maybe a year ago now. I was like, we really act like being black is part of the fall. Like the way people talk about it. Yeah. Like, oh, you know, you're not, you had a, you're a Christian. Like that's your identity. It's like, no, God still made me black. Like that isn't part of the fallen world. What's part of the fallen world is how people see it. Yeah. <laughs> and what we've done with it and the hierarchies that we've created from the different ways in which God has chosen to manifest his creation. You know? That's it. That's it. We're trying to like, almost like level it out. Like, divide everything and get get an average of what people should be like. But it's the differences that abound within and around us that adds to the beauty of what you see around. And that should be acknowledged, not as something to be taken away from or flattened to make you, in a way, feel like more superior than the other person. Precisely. Um, and I think, I think that's it. And I think that's where my hope lies um, for the future of the church is yeah. that we can really have a moment of understanding the true humility that the cross yields. So think true. What's interesting to me is that I think the world has to offer, and it's not a bad thing, a sense of equality that says you are as good as me, which is half of the conversation. That's incredibly important. But I think what 
the church has to offer is actually the opposite, which is I am as broken as you. Oh, wow. That is, that is, that is, that's really deep right there. Bina. I think we really need to wrestle with that because I think that it's one thing to look at somebody who's different to you and be like, yeah, you're as good as me. You should yeah. have happen. Yeah. Well, I have the humility to say I'm as broken as you. I'm as broken as you. And then that way together we can turn towards the saving grace of Christ because in him we're made perfect. Precisely. Dang, girl. <laughs> Make droppable moment. Um, so I'm going to drop my pen instead. Can you hear that? Well, right. girl, you're just yeah. dropping truth bombs. That's really so deep. Wow. I, wow. I realize that and I'm like, I think that's what's missing. and It's because humility is really what we're called to and really seeing God as the ultimate, God as the one um, whom we are unlike, who I cannot reach. <laughs> we, but, we all cannot reach, but we're aspiring towards, you know, precisely that, that perfection, which is helping the Holy Spirit and all of that jazz. And that makes the focus not be on us and what we have, you know, as far as our qualities, but what God can do through us, exactly. you know. My goodness. Exactly. That is that is so true. I wonder how things would change if that was our focus. I wonder if I hope with this kind of conversations we're having, it can it can get out there and people can begin to think differently. Because this is challenging me as well for some of the biases I might hold to other people that even like me, people that are not like me, but just seeing the other person as equally broken and you know, wanting to connect to something bigger than us. Definitely. Definitely. I think that I really have hope when I think about it from that perspective, because I think that's the only thing that keeps me <laughs> sane <laughs> in America. <laughs> you give me a hard time, you know? Yeah. Um, all right. And I think that's that. all I really ask for. I'm like, and I think that was what scared me. I think when I moved here, I was like, am I just going to live here and get really bitter <laughs> because I'm treated badly <laughs> like, oh. all the time. I think you've done you've done way better than you, you thought you were gonna because you, you don't sound bitter to me. You sound very hopeful. I'm glad. That I, is good. I, I think I'm realizing that, and this is an overall just faith lesson that I think I've been learning in different ways since I was a teenager. But to understand the goodness and the fullness of God doesn't mean that I have to look away from things that are hard and things that are ugly and things that are broken. Glory by looking at them. I can actually see God's goodness so much better. That is great. Um, that is and great. so I think that's what, that's the biggest thing. I think being black in America has taught me. I'm like, <laughs> so I hey, go- you're welcome from America. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know that podcast is going mainstream and that there are many people all over the world listening to podcasts daily? For example, in the U.S. alone, one in every three persons listen to at least one podcast every month. Well, that's a lot of people. Do you also know that podcast listeners tend to be more loyal, affluent, and educated? Speaking of these retro qualities, did you also know that on a monthly basis, thousands of people all over the world listen to the Marcible podcast? Hmm. Well, do you have a business, service, event, or product you would love loyal, affluent, and educated listeners to hear about? Then look no further. To promote your services on the podcast, send an email to talktomo at mostable.com today. Or you can visit our website at www.mostable.com. That is www.mosibyl.com. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, 
So you're in grad school now, pursuing a PhD in history. Are you in what school are you at? I'm at Vanderbilt. Oh, so um, from what I know, because my friend got um, a degree from there as well. It's okay. not very racially diverse. It's very what? It's not very racially diverse. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but I'm curious to know, like, we've talked about that racial diversity and all. How do you cope with, you know, grad school? And basically, how do you take care of, your, of yourself mentally? Right. Well, until recently, I didn't. I didn't take care of myself mentally. <laughs> I learned the hard way. Um, I think there are several levels to it, I think. Um, I think if I'd stayed at home and gone to grad school, that would have been hard enough. Yeah. But moving to a new country as a black woman <laughs> in <laughs> PhD in Nashville, Tennessee, <laughs> exactly to ne- the actual South. <laughs> yep. You wanted to learn more about American Civil War and you know black narratives and American history. There you go. Exactly. <laughs> a week before I left, I watched an episode of the TV show Blackish. Oh, uh, and the grandfather makes a comment when one of the kids is applying to college. One of the Vanderbilt, and he's like. You're not ready for that. That's deep fried racism down there. <laughs> That's where I'm moving. <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, so I would say, like I said, I, I learned the hard way. Um, I just went hard. And I think um, I didn't realize the differences between the American institution and the British institution, mm. Mm. Um, the academy until maybe a year in and I was burnt out because we typically get assigned a few books that were expected to read cover to cover back home at the, in the UK. Whereas here we're assigned like 10 books yeah. <laughs> and we're not expected to read it cover to cover. I did not know this. I was trying to read everything cover to cover. Oh geez. Yeah. So I just didn't sleep. I didn't do anything. I just, ate when I could and just read um and that's essentially my profession the first few years was just reading devouring books um and I think I think that was one issue and then the second part and I'd be curious to know it's like this in your field too I came to realize that there is a part of grad school that is about what we call posturing Okay. So it's this appearance of I'm doing everything all the time. I'm on top of everything, and nobody has the the nobody has the guts to say actually <laughs> I have no idea what I what doing. this is about. And everybody keeps you know you ask questions and you realize that you're all confused, but nobody's really you know confess fessing up. Precisely. Now I'm an open book person, and I was very open. I was very like is anybody else having a really hard time? <laughs> I'm having a terrible time. <laughs> but I think what that did, because nobody else was really willing to admit that, especially yeah. I'd say in the first like couple of years, yeah. I'd say people are getting better at it now. Um, it made me feel like I shouldn't be there. Um, uh, and everybody so else imposter fine. syndrome. Like, yeah. And I just uh, wasn't smart enough to keep up. Um, girl totally relatable (laughs) (laughs) and that took hold real deep and then for the first time I had feedback on my work that I now understand was very racialized I didn't have time Um, I was just confused and took it personally and thought again I'm not good enough to be here 
I probably shouldn't be here. Um, thankfully, I have three black professors on my committee. Yeah. And when I, I basically got to m- nearing the end of my second semester and I couldn't get out of bed though. I, oh, wow. I just, I couldn't. Like I would wake up. I'm a very early riser. I wake up, well, not very early. I wake up at like six. Okay. And I could stay in bed until like one. I just didn't. I didn't want to, I was turning in work late. I didn't want to be there. Like, and I think what was the hardest was thinking that the thing that I feel called to and the thing that I feel passionate about, I feel like I'm just learning that I'm not good at it. Uh, uh. And then you're, you're smart enough to be there. You belong there. Exactly. <laughs> I know that now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that you, you, you're out of it because that experience could have just not only just, you know, made you quit school altogether, mm-hmm. but le- just left you with that unanswered question of, am I ever going to be enough? Not that you're not going to have those questions later on, but I'm glad that you're over that. But to answer your question, yes. Uh, and I talked about imposter syndrome many times. I have written about my experience in grad school, mm-hmm. um, especially fueled by depression and anxiety. And there was a time I couldn't even turn in work like you and um, the ones I was turning were so sloppy, which was never my style. Yeah. And deadlines were like not even existed. Like I just kept pushing those envelopes. Mm-hmm. And I had a very good mentor, which, you know, I hope you do have that because that was like one of my saving grace. She, she sat me down one time and I've talked about this before on the show. And she was like, all right, something is off with you. Like what's going on? I don't know. You don't have to tell me the full extent if you're not comfortable sharing, but know that it's okay not to be okay. And if you need to go see a counselor, just go over to the you know mental health services and go talk to somebody. So hearing as a, as an international student on a visa that your whole livelihood depends on, hearing your 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 mentor talk to you about that, like it's okay to not be okay. I just started crying in her office yeah. and <laughs> and and that was it. I realized that I had you know perfection um, perfectionist tendencies, mm-hmm. and I had never explored the red lines. It had to be black or white. Um, I wouldn't start anything because I was afraid it wasn't going to be perfect. Same. And so I started going to therapy and I started talking about stuff and I became so vocal about just those experiences. So yes, you know, those things are real. And know that it's not just unique to you, not to like, you know, um, normalize your experience as it being nothing. I mean, those were real. And I, I do understand what you might have, have gone through. And chances are you might have those things come up again because it never ends, really. And I'll tell you that much. Okay. As an assistant professor, I struggle still. My first year, I was so confused because, you know, I felt smart enough to have gotten this position right out of grad school without having to do a postdoc. But then I had to keep pretending to like be active so that people would just see me because I felt like at the point I was afraid about things like you know they're yeah. probably just going to kick me out one day when they find out that I'm not as smart as I think I'm supposed to be but what you what really changes is how good you are at just talking about it so I have friends that I can talk to about it and they help me to like mirror what I ought to like tell myself because I'm yeah. not very good at working myself up like you know encouraging myself but I'm good at doing that for other people yeah. you know so yeah that's what I do now I have friends that I when yeah. I go through those those um 
emotions just talk to them and you know encourage me and all of that so yeah that is basically my i had a pretty similar track like queen uh-huh. and my main advisor is um a man and so he i started getting a set in his office and he just he couldn't handle it oh my gosh <laughs> And he didn't want to be fired, maybe for so he could give you a hug, but then that's gonna be like a title nine or exactly. Yeah, he sat in front of me and was like and handed me a tissue and he was like, You're allowed to cry one tissue's amount. <laughs> Wait, was that a joke? So I get it. Oh my gosh. But I managed to work with a woman um that I really admire. Good. Um and she is one of my closest mentors. And I honestly need to see her more because that's it. I'm like, I don't think it's just me, but I get into a head of like, I should be fine now. Don't bother people. Huh. So it's like, actually, no, she's offered herself as a resource. If I need to see it, yeah. the expectation is that I will need her again, mm-hmm. you know? But yeah. I remember just kind of hitting, hitting the wall of being like, I can't keep going like this. And we finished class and I went up to her and she's a, beautiful black woman she's amazing um and she could see me welling up and i was like can i maybe talk to you in your office please okay let's talk about something else as we walk as we walk across campus so you don't cry and then i started like we were in the middle of the quad (laughs) and i start like welling up and she's like adina they cannot see you cry you can let go and cry as much as you want once you get into the office but <laughs> you can't give them the satisfaction of thinking that they got to you and I'm like that is so true <laughs> and it's it's funny because it's a simultaneous pressure that's ridiculous I know mm-hmm. I do feel like there is that air especially when you're in a predominantly white institution and people think that you're there as a diversity like a, as a token to fill up the color wheel Exactly. There's this feeling like everybody's expecting that you're not going to make it, which means that you don't get to emote. You don't get to process. It doesn't get to be hard for you in ways that it is for other people. Plus you get to do twice as much. Precisely. To prove that you belong there. Precisely. And it's (sighs) the tangled web of (laughs) week. That was it for me. I just, I I hit a wall and it was one of my, thankfully I live with, she, I don't live with her anymore, but she um, had been in counseling for a while. She spoke about how much it had changed her life. Yeah. Uh, And I now currently live with two social workers, one of whom is training to be a therapist. So that really shoved me. (laughs) (laughs) There's no escaping anymore. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Um, Uh. I, I think it's a cultural thing too. Like talking about our problems, um, I feel is something that our generation is beginning to do. Um, my parents' generation, not at all. That's yeah, <laughs> very mental health issues. Like, good luck with that. Exactly. Um, right away. <laughs> being a counselor has been so helpful. Um, and my friend who suggested it put it really, really well because she was just like having somebody that is completely detached from your life and it's just solely invested in you yeah, not yeah. kind of like with the bias of like i want you to do this or be my friend in this way and like uh-huh. a particular outcome you actually just have somebody who's invested in you if you move forward you know um and i think that's helpful because i'm like chatting to my parents they worry that i'm gonna quit and i'm like i'm not quitting i'm just i just need to talk about it <laughs> <laughs> you know? oh and those expectations being from um, being of African descent and the Caribbean descent, like double the pressure. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. yeah my yeah. parents, particularly my mom, she's always like, don't quit. 
please don't. Oh. I never said I was quitting. Where is coming from? Oh, that was funny. Uh, imagine an African parent just saying, you know what, honey, if you want to quit, that's okay. Like the day you hear that, you know that Jesus is almost here. Like the rapture is almost happening. Absolutely. Oh, the day I started, I told my parents that I was in a relationship. They were both like, oh, okay, cool. And then I got a call from my mom like an oh, hour geez. later being like, Please don't quit your PhD just because you <laughs> want. I was like, what? Oh my gosh. Is that thing of you can't be in school and have a boyfriend at the same time? Exactly. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, Black mobs. <laughs> uh, so how's, how's dating life been? Like, and how are you combining that with school? I'm not trying to echo your mom's words right now, but. Oh no. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, trigger warnings, you know. <laughs> oh, I know, right? It was. It's. It's been good. It's definitely a challenge. Um, and I think I am fortunate in that. Um, the guy that I'm dating has a very intensive career. Like he has a lot of things that he needs to do too. Okay. So I think the uniqueness of the grad school experience is kind of mitigated by the fact. I don't even think it's really his career. He's just a very hard worker. Um, (laughs) And so I think he understands the priority that school takes and is incredibly encouraging um, and helps me to actually, he's very good at um, like strategizing things and kind of project managing. So he's currently helping me map out my dissertation. (laughs) Wow. Look at you. I just need this to be in like, like, how do I get this down into doable steps? Because right now it just feels like this massive thing and I don't know where to start. Um, so he's helping me, like, come up with discrete tasks um, to complete. Um, so I benefit from him personality-wise. But I think I – this is my first relationship. I haven't okay. dated at all. Um, really? I'm 26. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Your parents will be proud of you. You actually stuck it out till 20-something. I did. That's the thing. I'm only like, black parents, only black people can really understand the struggle. <laughs> exactly. I'm like, they panicked. And I was like, you know, both my sisters got married at 24. So I, Oh, jeez. So you're like, you kind of late right now. You're, you're so old right now, according to that standard. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, so I, um, I hadn't been in a relationship before this. And in hindsight... At the time, I really didn't like that. I was just kind of like, what's wrong with me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but in hindsight, I think what I really value is I I moved here because I felt like God had called me here. And I have a sense of who I am and what God is doing with my life in and of myself. Like, I don't feel like I was ever in a position where I was waiting for my life to start by you know hitching to another person um and i i really value that because i think from just uh, it's probably mostly tv and you know social media and things like that when you see people kind of hitting their 40s and being married for however long and kind of drifting apart and that whole narrative i'm just kind of like and the whole like i don't know you anymore i'm like well i don't i don't know you necessarily knew yourself if you got married like that young. <laughs> um, and I think that we really underestimate that, particularly with women. I think we really underestimate um, the significance of truly 
what is it for my identity to be in Christ? What are the things that I feel like he's called me to do? Mm. Um, rather than how can I be a good wife to somebody? So, <sighs> oh my gosh, girl, you speak I my language. Like I feel like we're just being done a disservice. <laughs> but that's how we're raised. Like the moment you walk in, you can say, Daya, mama, it's like, let's groom you for the husband's house. Yeah. And then you, you live your life like a princess being groomed, or not like a princess, but you have that at the back of your mind that you're going to be some, you're going to be claimed by somebody. Your mission in life is to be with the way somebody has to purchase you at a price. You go over to the house for all the tools you've been prepared with, cooking, cleaning, scrubbing, smiling, baking, everything, you know, mm-hmm. like the one-stop shop, be his therapist, be everything he needs to be. Exactly. He wants you to be. And then you get there. It's like, this is what I've been doing for all my life. Right? Exactly. People don't have a sense of identity and marriage becomes that thing you have to aspire to at the cost of your personal development. Like, what do you want? What are you like? Like, what makes you tick? What makes you sad? Exactly. Things like that. I mean, so girl, you're speaking my language. Definitely. You have you speak in my That is one area that I really I appreciate my dad particularly because he is not he is not like that at all. And I remember going to him once because I was the polar opposite of my sisters. My sisters had like several boyfriends, those kind of things. I never did, not at all. Um, and I also just I've never been the boy crazy girl. Like that just didn't really happen that much yeah. um, for me. But I remember going to my dad after they were both, both my sisters were like, why aren't you dating when I was like 20 or something? And I was like, dad, like, what if there's something wrong with me? Like, why is this not happening to me? And he was like, <laughs> love my dad. He turned around and he was like, I don't know that I'm the best person to talk about this with. I was like, why? And he was like, I just don't think you like what I have to say. I was like, what do you have to say? And he was like, I just think that you've been lied to and told that finding somebody is the only way that you can be fulfilled and have a fulfilling life. But I think that you can have a fulfilled life on your own. I don't think you need to sit and think that when will it happen for me is the way to live your life. Like you pursue God, you follow the things that you're passionate about and that you feel he's called you to. Your dad told you that. Yeah. And he's like, and if he brings somebody into your path as you're doing that, then great. If he does We need to tweet that. It's like a second thing your dad is saying that we need to tweet. He's a very wise man. <laughs> we need to, yeah. We, we, somebody needs to be like following him around with like a scribe and just, just putting him. everything down. <laughs> uh, oh, he's, wow. right. he's right. And I think that's what, that's what meant that for me, the decision to get into a relationship, it was, it was very, it was very obvious to me. I was like, there is a path crossing here that has never happened before for me. Um, and so it's worth investing some time in um, and seeing what God will do with it. And I feel like God has said, you know, to continue building. And I think that's the other part of dating that honestly, it's just really hard to steward. It's, it's very much a, walking with God in a paced way, discerning, but also investing. And I think I've only recently understood that that's a dichotomy. I think my fearful brain was like, how do you hold something lightly and also invest? That doesn't make any sense. In a sense like, yeah. I've been praying about it a lot because we're what, a year into the relationship. And I feel like God's actually helped me get out of the fearful zone. And it's like, no, you just walk with me. And it requires wisdom. It requires actual, like, 
being led by the spirit it isn't something to do carelessly because it is a matter of the heart but and that that is what investing is those two things aren't different um but i think i, I was caught up on that and it's like how on earth do you like let someone get to know you really deeply but not too deeply like <laughs> what does that even mean <laughs> it is it is a confusing thing but i'm grateful that i'm doing it at this age um rather than a lot younger and that's not to say it's right or wrong i just know that for me and my personality I, and what god has been doing in my life yeah i think now is a better time <laughs> and i think you're you're going at it just the right way i think a lot of us um yeah a lot of us probably should have done it that way as far as just developing yourself and then almost like whatever you your hands find doing keep doing it and then like your dad said as you're doing that if you if the mind comes your way then you know decide if it's for you but not coming at life as it especially as a female growing up in african in an african setting or having african parents or you know one or, or both of them mm-hmm. is you know i think we need to start changing that narrative because it's such a falsehood that has been perpetrated for so long and it teaches us like the two sexes against each other the woman is so overprepared and you know underdeveloped as far as um as far as her identity is concerned and the man is, you know, underprepared and overpuffed up. And it's such a mismatch between the two sexes and causes for like, you know, a disaster on the marital field. Absolutely. And I think that I think that is the 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 thing that manifests in all those issues later. And I'm not saying that it can be avoided. You're everybody's, you know, broken people in progress. <laughs> yeah. Well we can change that narrative. Because we at tomorrow's we're the, like we're mothers to be, right? And because I'm sure our parents also went through that, you know, stress. And I'm thinking if we keep talking about it without working on it, it's just gonna be the same cycle of, you know, of stress, you know, being sure. transplanted and implanted over and over again i completely agree and i think that's that 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 to me is my hope like men and women especially in our 20s i'm like and especially as christians i'm like for us women to really dig deep and understand like who we are in god and also what our lives are in between you know the father son holy spirit and us (laughs) hallelujah bringing a guy into it and on the flip side i really think um that that's something that guys need to work on too oh yeah yeah you're totally right it's not just women yeah be you know your emotional conduit the person who pulls everything out of you not looking to her to you know provide you know everything domestic (laughs) all those different things i'm like if you need to do that work you need to do that work before you're getting married. It's going to That's be That's it. And the, the man shouldn't become like, your, like you said, the one-stop shop to fulfill all the needs that you're supposed to find in your father, not your earthly father, but in God. And you just want that guy to be everything to you. And honestly, I think to, even for me, that's again where the humility piece comes in because you have to check yourself. I found that I have to check myself on that again and again and again and realize that I don't think we we pay attention to how much messaging we get about romantic relationships. Mm. It is everywhere. And we're essentially being taught by TV, by music. And the books. <laughs> the fairy tale books you grew up reading. And the, coming for you. 
<laughs> that is supposed to be what romantic relationships look like. This is what he's supposed to do. This is what you're supposed to do. And I honestly realized, I was like, oh, I haven't sat down to ask myself, like, what do I value? Not what should my, you know, future spouse, future whatever be like? What do yeah. I actually value? And what is of God in those things that I value? Yeah. And actually, like, am I requiring too much of another human being that I should actually be asking of God? Um, and, I, and I think that that's a continue. I don't think I'll ever have to stop asking that question. <laughs> um, Regardless of whether you're hooked up or not. Yes, it's, I, I agree with you. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's a hard thing. And I think um, I'm learning, especially from being in counseling for a year and almost a half at this point um that emotional intelligence is it's a lifelong work <laughs> yep it is and in both sexes we all have a long way to go exactly. oh, i completely agree but I think <sighs> it's worthwhile work especially with regards to relationship i'm like it will be so helpful and so fruitful yeah. if you are aware of what you are bringing into the room i agree I I totally agree, and I wish you the best with your um boyfriend and with grad school as well. <laughs> and <laughs> this this was you know such a wonderful evening spent with you, just talking you know about you and moving from the UK to um to the US to study, and just some of the challenges you've experienced, and also the beauty of just being here as well. And uh, um, I pray that God would keep perfecting you know everything that concerns you. And just whenever you find that confusion arising from work and your um, your channels of expression, know that know that um, the breakthrough is just around the corner and keep pressing through. And at the end of everything, I know that all the glory belongs to God and you're going to shine through. So that's my prayer for you, Abena. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. All right. <laughs> my pleasure. My pleasure. <laughs> Anyways, everyone that has been uh, the show with Abena, and if you like this content, go online and go um, listen to more episodes. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to the podcast on. And catch you guys in another episode of the show. I remain your host, Miss Mo. All right, girl. Um, I'll let you waste. Love all your ways. Love all your flaws. Love all your moments when you don't know who you are. Love when you love. Trying to follow stars Love with all you got Even on days when loving you is hard, yeah Love you with all your scars and your heartache Love you in all those times that you lost your mind Love you on those that don't know where to start days Even though on days like that it's always hard to find Hey, love you when you're so Don't ever forget to Love you when they don't, oh Yeah, baby, you should know that love for you go Cause it's dangerous to let somebody Love you more than you love yourself More than you love So them. don't you let nobody Love you more than you love yourself love. When you go through